The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, we talk about Sarah's experience of serving as chair of the Washington State Redistricting Commission and its impact on Native people. Sarah, um, good morning. Hi. (laughs) So little known fact to many of our podcast listeners, you recently served as chair of the state of Washington's redistricting commission. It was very high level, high exposure, political work, and it was a tremendous amount of work. I I think you basically volunteered something like, was it 20 hours a week for 13 months? Right. And so also another little known fact, except I'm sure it's known to, well, it's actually not little known because I think a lot of people in the state of Washington and even across the country to some degree know it now that you recently resigned as chair of that redistricting commission. And as you said to me, you learned a lot about power and how it gets wielded in our system from this experience. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about this, and we will talk about why you resigned. But I thought maybe first we could start at the very beginning. Does that sound good? Absolutely. You bet. Okay. So I'm wondering, could you just explain what redistricting, wow, hard word to say for some reason for me, what redistricting is, why it's such a big deal, And then how did you get asked to serve as chair of the redistricting commission? And why did you say, yes, that was a lot, but I trust you can go with it. (laughs) (laughs) You bet. Yeah. And so um, just between you and me, Sherry, um, I had trouble saying the word redistricting for months of public (laughs) meetings. So it is a tricky word to say, and I had to practice it over and over again. I really, it was, I found it to be very challenging actually. And I messed up. Seriously. If you watch the first two months of meetings, you will see me biff it on every single meeting. (laughs) Thank you. I feel a lot better. (laughs) Anyway, um, so just a little bit about what redistricting is. So um, as many of you probably know, the United States Constitution calls for a census to happen in our country every 10 years. And the purpose of that census is for um, representation in the Senate and the House of Representatives. And so um, it's it's based on the population of the state, um, your representation in Congress. And so it, every 10 years in the year following the census, redistricting occurs in the United States. And so what that means is the political boundaries um, for election precincts and et cetera are drawn and every state um, has their own way of drawing those political boundaries so that um, people's interests are represented in Congress um, and also at the state level. So in this, in the state legislature. And so and it happens every 10 years. And um, in the state of Washington, 
there is a bipartisan commission. So um, in the state of Washington for the past 40 years, this is um, outlined in the constitution of the state. Um, there will be a bipartisan commission where um, the House and the Senate of, of the state, those state bodies, um, the two largest parties will appoint uh, voting commissioners. And then those four voting commissioners, one from the House, one from the Senate, um, Republican, one from the House, one from the Senate, um, Democrat, the four of those individuals will then elect a chair and the chair is non-voting. It's a non-voting position. And the purpose of the chair is to stand up um, the institution, which really only exists every 10 years for about a year. And, and it has staff and, you know, it has, um, uh, rules and laws that it has to abide by. And the chair stands that up, hires the staff, and then also facilitates the process of redistricting. And so I served in that role. Wow. So why do you think you were asked to do this other than, of course, you're amazing. And so why wouldn't you be asked, in my opinion? But you're so funny. So the, the, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, I was called on a Thursday, and I think I was... Um, I was nominated and affirmed on a Sunday. So um, it's not the kind of a position that you apply for. Uh, the chambers of the Senate and the House, um, each, uh, you know, the two major parties each put their person forward. And I imagine there's some kind of apparatus to identify a chair. Um, historically, in the state of Washington, people who have served as voting commissioners have been retired um, politicians. So people who had at one time been in the legislature are no longer um, part of it. Um, and the, the chair has also historically been a retired person, a judge or um, from you know, from some kind of CEO or some person who who had been in a position of some kind of gravitas. So the commission this time was quite different in that all of the voting members were people under 50, everyone working full time. And that includes me, the chair. And um, this commission was also historic in that three of the members of the commission were people of color. Hmm. So we had... Um, April Sims, who's African-American, and Brady Walkinshaw, who's Latino, and myself. Um, and so there was, there was, I believe, an effort um, to diversify the commission in this round, and then um, that extended also to, to the nomination of the chair. What I understood um, from the staff who called me and asked if I'd be interested is that they were really interested in my role as a mediator and as a professional negotiator and facilitator. Yeah. I think people, not everybody might know that you work as the executive director of the Dispute Resolution Center in Yakima. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And in that role, you not only teach mediation, but you do mediation. Is that correct? Yes. All, yeah. all kinds. Yeah. Dis dispute resolution, um, I would say, across a variety of different levels and including um, in community policing. Hmm. So why did you say yes? I mean, it's to such a, I mean, you knew going in, I think that it was going to be a, a lot of work and a lot of visibility. Yeah. I mean, my primary interest in doing it was because there's just, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a ton of political division right now. I'd say it's one of the most polarized 
uh, times uh, politically, certainly in recent history, and I think in I would say in my lifetime, there's just more political polarization um, than I've ever seen. And it seems to be deteriorating the faith in democratic institutions. And so uh, I felt like as a mediator, as a professional mediator coming to this space, it would be possible to, number one, engage the public in a way that the public has never been engaged in redistricting before. I mean, typically this is kind of insider baseball and a lot of people don't really know what's going on. And so I thought, gosh, we could, this is really an opportunity to engage the public differently um, than, than any commission has done that before. And then also with that engagement to, to um, demonstrate faith in a democratic process. And so I felt as a, as a conflict management professional, that this is a role I could serve. Well, and in fact, your, you did actually, your commission staff did undertake the largest, and as I think you said to me, the most accessible outreach effort in redistricting history. That's right. In Washington state. Yes. Yeah. I think you said there were more than I'm 6,000 electronic comments, hundreds of thousands of engagements through social media, and more than 400 state residents who provided public testimony. And this was all happening during COVID, I have to just add, which is really uh, amazing that you were and the commission were able to do that. I'm also aware that a big part of the public input effort that you were really wanting to also focus on was to actually really consult with the tribes. And can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, you know, first of all, as our staff was, was doing this public outreach effort, we created short films anybody could view on YouTube about what redistricting is or breaking it down. We, we created animated videos to, to explain what redistricting is. And we did that in a variety of different languages. Um, and, you know, we just reached out at the community level to every community that, that we could think of. We hired, um, full-time organizing staff, um, that would go out into the community and identify stakeholders and, and then created mechanisms, outreach mechanisms to get people engaged. And a priority for me was to reach out to Native American tribes. So in the state of Washington, it's the law for all government agencies to engage in consultation with um, Native American tribes. And what that ultimately means is acknowledging the sovereignty of federally recognized tribes um, when the state is going to make decisions about um, what will happen on Native land. It's the law that that agency will consult with, with tribes, with the tribal government. And so um, we're, we're the first uh, commission in the state of Washington that actually wrote a tribal consultation policy um, and engaged in tribal consultation. Yeah, and I want to just underline the fact that this is respecting the government-to-government relationship that is should be existing between um, state governments or any government body and, and Native American tribes. And I think that that's something that can't be underlined enough <laughs> about that tribes are sovereign governments. You've said before to me that they're often poorly represented in the U.S., whether that's in you know through various government bodies, because 
their numbers are are somewhat small. And so often their interests get disregarded, which means they often have little voice in political decisions. And so, you know, as you said, in Washington, the way to address that is this government to government consultation process. And and that really happened in the, during this redistricting process. That's right. And, and one of the things I want to just be really clear about is that as a, an indigenous woman myself, um, I take that perspective with me into every role that I'm in. So, um, and, I, and I don't think you have to be um, indigenous in order to do that. I think anybody can do this. Um, you can live your values in whatever role you're in at work at home, in your volunteer work. I think um, this idea of, of um, I, this is, you know, this is an activity that I do. I work on dismantling the doctrine of discovery in my spare time, you know, or when I'm working with a coalition. No, I'm doing that all the time in every, in every aspect of my life, including in this one. So because, you know, tribal consultation is a priority for me, this is an opportunity being part of this government agency to say, hey, we need to fulfill our commitment to engage in tribal consultation. And so we did write a policy. But the other thing that I did was I asked the commissioners, the voting commissioners in open public meetings to be trained on what what consultation is. And we worked together with the governor's office, um, their um, uh agency on Indian affairs to come and provide some training. And then that training was followed up by asking um, a diversity of tribes in the state of Washington to come to a public open meeting and to explain why this was important for their interests. So we did uh, multiple tiers of training to ensure that the voting commissioners would understand what tribal consultation is, what our policy says, and what their obligation is. Then at the end of that, we engaged in consultation. Sarah. I mean, I think that that's what's necessary to that education of the people who are actually going to be engaged in the, 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 the government to government process, the be, be, be trained and educated on what this actually means and why it's important from the mouths of the people from whom, who, who for whom it is very important and, and who need to see, have their voices represented. Um, it's really great. Um, so, so then after all this work, you basically, you draw maps, correct? That's right. And so, um, and that is the work of the voting commissioners. So the, so the four voting commissioners together um, have to come up with what's called a redistricting plan, um, which really amounts to drawing maps. And there's some fairly, you know, uh, complicated software that's used to draw those maps. So one of the things that we did, you know, that I did as chair and in trying to, to engage more of the public than ever before was to create a portal on our website so that anybody could draw a map, um, public schools, any individual community groups, they could draw their own maps and submit those as third party submissions. So they wouldn't have to buy the software. They could just download it directly from our website and they could submit maps. They could bring those maps to public meetings and explain what their interests were and they would have access to that technology. So that was really important to me was to be able to, to democratize that process. First of all, it gives the public an understanding of, of how maps are drawn. 
And second, they can draw their own community. Uh, the name of the Washington State Redistricting Commission in this 10-year cycle was draw your wah. You know, here you are, you were invited, you have a seat at the table to draw your community from your point of view. Wow, that's that's really cool. Um, and I, may I just add, just such a lot of work. I mean, the insider baseball, uh, I'm sure is actually probably doesn't take as much work, but so no wonder you were working so much and the other staff and commissioners were working so much during those 13 months. And, you know, because I love you and care for you, Sarah, I think I was often wondering, okay, is she almost done? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, are you almost done with the process? So I want to talk a little bit about that because actually that just, you know, it kept on going. So you draw the maps uh, and then you're done, right? <laughs> that was certainly what I thought would happen, that, that the voting commissioners would, would draw the maps and they would come to some agreement and then we would be done. And so <clears throat> I'm going to talk about that negotiation process for a moment because <clears throat> Each of these four commissioners, they each have their own staff and they're drawing their own maps. So if you were to look back at our website, you would see that each of them had created their own plan. There are four plans. Actually, I think they they each created a legislative plan and a congressional plan. And they did two, at least two of them did two rounds of that. And so, uh, and those, those plans are posted. So as the chair, my job was to help the four of them to come to some consensus about what a final plan would be. So if you saw their four individual plans, you would see that they're very different from each other because each of them represents, you know, their unique interests. And so, um, as the, as the chair, my goal was to get as much input into that process as possible. So it wouldn't just be the four of them, the maps re reflecting their interests, but as many people as possible. And then, you know, I spent time with them uh, as they were negotiating with each other to come to a final plan. Which is, I'm assuming, where your mediation and dispute resolution skills came in very handy. Exactly, right. Right, like identifying the common interests and et cetera. So, so basically what happens from what I understand is that these maps, so finally the commissioners agree on a, a set of maps and then those maps, um, well, then what happened? I mean, I know that, that night right before the maps were due, I think because you send them to the, I can't remember, do you send them to the Supreme Court or you send them to the legislature by a statutory deadline, right? You send them to the legislature, but but what happened was, you know, they were negotiating until the very last minute. And so because they were negotiating so late into the night, they didn't complete the technical job of, of, of drawing the maps. And so the next day, um, it took probably another 12 hours for their staff to ultimately draw the, the technical maps. And by the next day, um, they were sent to me and I sent them directly to the Supreme Court because... Um, you know, the, the voting commissioners or the whole commission, we lost our statutory authority to draw these maps um, midnight, November 15th. And so then the, the authority then goes to the Supreme Court. So I, as the chair, sent the maps to the Supreme Court and said, look, you know, we, we cede our authority to you. And we know that, you know, we, we have faith in you that you'll draw um, faithful maps. And by the way, you know, we, we got all of this input. And so please consider... Um, these maps in your process. 
And what the Supreme Court did basically was just said, okay, we're not going to quibble with these maps. They were, they were drawn using the process, even though they were late, um, we'll affirm them. Right, because these maps reflected the desires of many, many, many communities of interest, and 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 they recognize that. I don't know if you want to talk about this, Sarah, but you said that actually the Democratic Party was pretty infuriated by that. You know, when I when I as the chair sent those maps to the Supreme Court, it 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 was, um, it was there were certainly political interests that opposed uh, that, um, and it's, this is all happening pretty quick time succession. Um, so, you know, I sent the maps. Um, and the reason that I sent them was because they, they were the maps that had been agreed to by consensus, all the commissioners and because, um, they contained the input of so many, um, so many parties. And so I was really hoping the Supreme court would consider, um, you know, using those maps and not everybody in power was happy with that because I think it felt like, okay, this process didn't work. We can start over from square one and redraw different maps. And so, you know, that there was definitely pressure to do that. Well, and redraw maps that we feel reflect our interests better, depending on who those people are. Or those that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, throughout this process, one of the challenges has been, you know, that there is a desire in this polarized time for a winner takes all approach, you know, that, that the winner gets to, gets to just, you know, gets to decide, um, how the maps are going to be drawn. And I guess I want to just explain why this matters. I mean, whoever is drawing the maps, it's possible to draw those maps with, with all number of interests. You could, you could do it based on, you know, keeping of communities of interest together, making sure that people, you know, have sort of a stable, um, precinct process over time. But of course, the political parties want to draw maps that are going to advantage their political party in the next election. And that's why this is a really, you know, sort of can be a fraught process. So, you know, when the redistricting commission presumably failed, there was a lot of anger that I would send the maps directly to the Supreme Court rather than just allowing um, the Supreme Court to draw them or just start over from square one. It's basically, you know, people in power want to lobby the Supreme Court for the map the way they want it. Right. And you were trying to preserve basically the voices of all the people who had spoken into this process. And it turned out the Supreme Court did affirm those maps. And then the two houses of the legislature legislature did, I believe in February, uh, adopt those maps. They said yes to them. Those maps then became the law. And am I, I'm correct about those details, right? Yep, that's right. Right. So now it's over, right? <laughs> well, no. I mean, so so what happened is, you know, as soon as the Supreme Court affirmed the maps or anyway, they weren't going to take action to to create different maps. Um, then then there was a lawsuit and the commission was sued for um, for violating the Open Public Meetings Act. So um, there there was just um, there, there were a couple of of different um, litigants in that lawsuit. And they, they were asking, they were, they were, they argued that the commission had um, negotiated in private outside of public open meeting. And, um, you know, so there's a certain amount of 
of course, negotiation that happens in private because it takes a really long time, but not the full commission. Typically, it would be two commissioners um, collaborating together to come up with a plan. And then an open public meeting, they're going to discuss that together, the four of them. So the, the lawsuit said that there had been this kind of underhanded deal making among the four of them outside the public um, view. And that really isn't what happened from my point of view as the facilitator. What happened was that they were they were still arguing and negotiating in, in pairs or dyads till the last minute and they kind of ran out of time. And so they they spent, you know, 15 minutes together at open public meeting. They had come to an agreement about the criteria for the maps and stuff, but they didn't they didn't meet the deadline. And so because they we're negotiating in pairs right up until the end. Um, there, the lawsuit presumed that they had been doing this backroom deal making, and so that's what that lawsuit about but was about. But the remedy was to, um, you know, they were saying the legal remedy they were asking for is that the maps would be invalidated. So once again, an effort to just say, you know, these maps are no good. We have to start over from square one. Right. So, but that, those lawsuits, my understanding is, were resolved in March, and basically, yeah. it's the maps, the maps that the commission drew, were preserved. Yeah, and then there, and then there was another lawsuit that ended up yeah. happening. So those were resolved. I mean, basically, by that, there was a settlement that was arrived at where the commissioners. Um, you know, ad- admitted to one count of an open public meetings violation. Basically, they had met um, after their final negotiation on November 15th to figure out how they were going to interact with the press the next day. And so they said, yes, we admit we did that. That was the settlement. The maps were preserved. That happened on a Friday. And then Monday, there was another lawsuit. And that was a, a Voting Rights Act lawsuit dropped on a Monday. So we had two days with no lawsuit, and then suddenly we had a new lawsuit. So basically, it was a coalition um, of community members um, and with the support of the ACLU and others. And they were saying that 15th District, which is the district where I happen to live, um, was drawn in a way that violates the Voting Rights Act, that basically um, Latinos in that district would not be able to um, elect their candidate of choice. And you've told me that this kind of lawsuit was to be expected. And as you said to me, you're fine with it. Like this yeah. community of interest has a right to be heard of heard in court. Yep. This lawsuit's part of the due process that's yeah. guaranteed to all Americans. And I really uh, appreciated your just, you know, really big picture understanding of, of what our democratic process allows and what people deserve. So you had no problem with that. No. But you did have a problem that resulted in you ending up resigning. Can you say more about that? Yeah, um, I resigned uh, from the commission because the the lawsuit was against you know Washington state not the redistricting commission it was it was filed against Washington state and the people that were named as defendants um, were the speaker of the house uh, the senate majority leader and the secretary of state typically it's the secretary of state together with the attorney general that will protect um, maps in a lawsuit like that so it's their job to represent the state of Washington and these three individuals basically the leaders um, of the legislature refused to defend the maps. They just basically said, well, we're not going to defend the maps. Um, it can go to federal court and the federal court can make a ruling based on hearing one side, which is the side of the community members that filed the lawsuit. And that was really, um, 
challenging because I think it's the part of the state officials to defend the um, the process. You know, this this political compromise, which is different from a winner takes all. And and I, and I want to say, you know, for the purpose of you know really dogging through this podcast, you know, there were eight tribes that entered into consultation with um, with the commission and most of their interests that they described were, were rep- reflected in the maps. So for basically for the, the, the state authorities or the attorney general, I'm sorry, the, um, for the secretary of state in particular to refuse to defend the maps means that they're just refusing to defend the interests of all the people whose interests are reflected in the maps, including tribal interests. So, um, and that's really um, difficult. And the way that ends up working out in my community, which is the 15th district, is that basically Latinos are suing the state of Washington. The state of Washington refuses to to defend the maps. And so, you know, it, it puts pressure on, you know, the, the tribe in the area to then enter into the lawsuit as, you know, an intervener. Um, to defend the map. So you have two vulnerable communities of color in court, in federal courts. Um, it's just wrong. It's the wrong thing to do. And, and can I just say spending lots of money? I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, it takes a lot of money to to bring things to these federal courts. So as you've said to me, you have these two community, more vulnerable communities that are basically paying to have the democratic process happen the way it's supposed to when I mean, I want to say this too, as you said to me, those maps, once the legislature voted on them in February, they were state law. And so as we know, secretaries of state are, even if they don't like that law, they actually are beholden in their role as secretary of state to uphold the law. Am I correct about that? Well, I mean, I guess that's a matter of opinion, but that's my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and this is all this whole thing is publicly available. You can look and you know, it can easily be looked up. I mean, the thing that was challenging for me is that, you know, the the presumption is that you know the Secretary of State is, you know, is is presuming or the the narrative is that a vulnerable community, the Latinos are trying to get their interests reached. And, you know, the secretary of state's being a good, good guy by saying, oh, well, you know, I won't, I won't defend the maps. I, I go ahead and, you know, have your way with no acknowledgement of the sovereignty of the nation whose interests are represented in those maps or any kind of acknowledgement of, you know, (laughs) of, of the people who are part of that compromise. You know, so basically you're saying, okay, we have all these parties and and this compromise reflects, you know, the settlement between them. But um, we're just going to let winner take all in this case. So I'm not putting the words in your mouth. I'm putting them in my mouth. I just want to be clear about that. To me, this sounds like um, I'm guessing a white power structure, largely predominantly white power structure, or a, a certain power structure pitting the interests of two communities of color against each other, I'm going to say in order for their own political interests, because my understanding is what this, what might they might actually like to have happen is let's just draw redraw these maps 
so that it's going to be more in our our political favor. That's I'm going to say that you're I know you're not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly how it appears. (laughs) Yeah. So. um, What's been the fallout from all of this? I mean, you quit. Um, and it, it actually became fairly big news. I mean, you resigned and and it, I believe you said the AP picked it up. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the challenging thing about the AP article is that uh, the Associated Press article is that it, it was written to to portray, you know, that I was I was angry at the voting commissioners for not trying to serve as an intervener. Um, in the lawsuit. And that's not the case. You know, the, the commission itself should not have to be a party to the lawsuit. You know, the commission evaporates, it expires on June 30th of this year. Um, and then to try and litigate by committee seems ridiculous. I, I resigned because um, it was so clearly a case where, you know, people who are in seats of political power now are not willing to comply with the process that was set out that would ensure compromise, but they want a winner takes all takes all strategy, you know, and I I guess I want to sort of drill down to what the 15th is like, you know, the Yakima County here in, in central Washington, you know, it's, it's historically been um, a conservative area politically. Um, Half the population is Latino or Latinx, but it also contains the Yakima Reservation, which is one of the largest reservations in the state of Washington. And so, um, you know, it, it has a lot, it has a diverse set of interests in it. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> from my point of view, choosing not to defend the maps is tantamount to um, to just not acknowledging the sovereignty of the Yakima Nation and and the consultation that was that was entered into in the government to government process, and so I just felt like you know because I happen to be the chair and I live in the fifteenth, which is what this lawsuit is about. Um, I could not, um, I just couldn't be a party to it. I just felt like you know this is this is wrong, and I can't. I'm not going to. Um, I am not going to be. Um, I don't want to be seen as, you know, the, the, the part of the government that is okay with that. Yeah. So... What were your takeaways from this whole odyssey you have been on? What did you, I don't know, what did you learn about power from this or just what, what did you learn from this experience? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think one of the challenges is that it's, it's while I went into the commission as the chair hoping to be the fifth seat at the table, that is to say you have four seats. Um, those are decision makers. They're representing two parties. And the fifth seat from my point of view is to be the public. I want to represent the public. I'm bringing the public to this table, the public really seeking out, you know, vulnerable communities, ensuring that they have access, they have the opportunity to engage. And 
those things are all presumed to be democratic values. And I don't mean the Democratic Party. I mean, values of democracy. And it was really disturbing to see that effort, you know, that was actually, it was a fruitful effort because it ended in, in consensus and compromise. But to see that the final product just thrown under the bus by people in power because it didn't suit them. And, you know, I don't think that is about one party or another. I think that's just how power <laughs> works. You know, if it doesn't go your way, you know, I believe in these things as long as it goes my way. The challenge with, with being a, a Native American person or a Native American tribe within that is that within that kind of structure is that you're never going to be the majority, you know, in any in any state, you're not going to be the majority. You're not going to be a meaningful minority. I mean, we're two percent of the population in in the United States. the The only way to be represented is to use these kinds of um, policies that ensure consultation, and for those to be dismissed out of hand because it's not in the interest of whoever happens to be in power is. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. And so, so what I've learned, I think what I've learned about the nature of power, a couple things. The first is that when I'm in a position of power, you know, and I do think I, I was in this unique position to actually make structural change. My first obligation is to give that away. So what I mean by that is to share that with vulnerable communities. That's, that's my job. My job isn't to use my wisdom to do what I think is best, but to to broaden the opportunity for everyone to be involved in that. And, uh, you know, so I learned that about myself. It's, it's a very slippery slope to say, hey, you know, what I can do is I just, I can just decide for everybody what the best thing is. It's just not right. And the other thing I learned is that people in power will ab abandon their values or their, their espoused values in order to, uh, to get, to, to meet their interests. And I don't think that is associated with one side of the aisle or the other. I think that's across the board. So where does that leave you as you think about though, the engaging and I don't know, engaging in political processes to try to affect change. I mean, I know you're not, never going to stop doing that. Um, but I, does this end up leaving you like more disillusioned or you know what I mean? Like, where does that leave you? Yeah, not at all. So, you know, just be tedious here and say, you know, by the secretary of state choosing not to defend the maps, his name is Steve Hobbs. He's pitting two communities of color against each other. You know, he doesn't personally have to believe in the maps, but he does have to defend the law. Um, and, you know, in federal court, uh, the Latino community, they get to make their case. Um, and there needs to be somebody making the case for, for the people all, whose interests are represented in the maps. And that's due process. And by not defending the maps, Washington State's, you know, leaders are attempting to circumvent due process. Uh, and that's wrong. So I feel like, you know, the, the way this all ends for me, I am so proud of the work that we did. I'm absolutely proud of the historic commission. And I feel like part of the reason we got so much pushback is because of the historic nature of the work that we did. Um, 
I think often historically the, the irony is, you know, this commission was accused of doing, you know, backroom negotiating when in fact, I think that's how most redistricting happens. <laughs> and this one didn't do it that way. I mean, we engaged as much public as we possibly could. We had all of these community forums around the state. We had two in every single, you know, congressional district. We had tons of public comment, thousands of public comment. You know, all of that was, you know, consolidated into um, by staff so that it could be actionable by the commission, you know, so they could use it to make decisions. And, um, you know, it was, I think it is just the most, the most engaged and, um, you know, we, we did all of these public meetings in a, you could, you could, you could go and, and have translation in any language with enough um, notice, but every single meeting was done in American Sign Language and in Spanish. We just really democratized the process. And I am proud of that. And I think it's going to be hard to not do that in 10 years time. I think we've set an expectation and I'm proud of that. I'm also proud of the fact that in this extremely polarized moment in our political life as a nation, these four commissioners chose to rise above their individual interests and negotiate to each other, with each other to, uh, to a settlement. And I am proud of that. I'm proud of every one of them. And I know it was hard. All of them have received pushback from their parties. And I am so proud of that. And, you know, and I will defend that. Um, and I, I resigned from the commission because as a member of the commission, I'm not, I'm not able to speak publicly about, you know, what happened from my point of view. And so I resigned so that I could do that and really say to Washington state, uh, my expectation is that you were going to do the right thing and defend these maps in federal court. And, you know, I, so, I mean, I, I feel really proud of the work and I'm proud of my role in it. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we engaged in tribal consultation. I don't think any commission in the future is going to be able to do this work without consulting with um, Native American tribes. And in fact, you know, it's now an RCW on the book. So, so it would take the next commission would have to, you know, they would have to create an RCW to undo it. Um, it's an RCW. Well, I'm sorry. It's a policy. You know, it's now a policy of the commission. So the next commission will create policies, but until they do, our policies are the policies of the commission. And so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm proud of that because I don't think any commission going forward is going to be able to do the work without compliance with that. I mean, it, it would be hard. You know, how could you, how could you say, oh yeah, you know, the last commission did it, but we're not going to, that's the law. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, 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 I think what you're saying is that though, I mean, I think what you're simply saying, Sarah, in a way is like, you, you, the, the laws of Washington state and the policies did actually a lot, once they were actually taken, once they were actually really, um, done and performed the way they were supposed to be really did have a democratic democratizing effect on this whole process and that that was possible and yes there's going to be pushback on that in fact that pushback is to be expected um but that something uh something something that was really good happened here and 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 it's it, it's going to keep happening um, it, it's setting a precedent in a way that's probably going to keep happening 
that was a very inelegant way of saying what you just said. But I think it's, I think I just, that was my summary of it. Like good stuff happened and it was actually, the good stuff was actually based on the laws and policies that were already existed, existing. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I would just say, you know, for a lot of people have called me, you know, other, you know, politicians or various, I'm not a politician, but various politicians have called me and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. And it's like, man, don't be sorry. I am proud of what we did. And I'm, I'm completely, I stand behind it. I don't, I don't have any regret. And I think that's the case, you know, Sherry and I, you've, you and I have seen this over the years too. When, when something, when, when you, when change occurs, when we, when we impact structure, that structure um, tries to rectify that. And it just happens again and again. I mean, and, and that's, you have to let it roll off because it's just, it's just how things work. It's just the nature of systems, actually. They self-correct. They, you know, so, so we do this amazing work. And so all these lawsuits drop. Well, it's just what happens um, when you're trying to change a system. One of the things I've been really working hard at is trying to encourage the voting commissioners who have just received so much pressure from their parties um, to, you know, to, to take a step back or to, um, to reverse course. And, you know, I've just been trying to encourage them and say, you know, um, this is good work. And, um, regardless of what it says in the press, uh, we know what we did and think about what we're doing for the next commission. You know, the next commission is not going to be five retired white people. You know, I mean, it's going to be very hard to have another commission like that. And we also talk about, would it be if we were five retired white people, would we be having this kind of pushback? The answer is no, but we also wouldn't have done this great outreach. We wouldn't have run it the way that we did. We wouldn't have had the level of transparency. I mean, it's kind of ironic because we were sued the first time for being non-transparent and we've had the most transparent commission that's ever been. But I mean, that's great. I don't mind being sued because it's like, hey, people are paying attention and that's good. They they have a right to to uh, to call us to task if they feel we're not doing what we're supposed to do. But I mean, if only 10 people followed redistricting, we wouldn't have been sued, you know. So so that suit was a result of what what we were trying to do, which is to be transparent and fully engaged. So I'm I'm really proud of it. And and um, I, I don't I don't have any regrets at all. And I don't know that I feel more jaded. I think I feel um like I have a better understanding of, of party politics in terms of thinking, Hey, you know, there are these espoused values and there's supposedly these difference between the parties. And boy, I don't see that at all in action. And I think I, which, which frankly, Sarah, you've been telling me this for years. Like if we're going to be involved in this work of systems change and of, of redistribution of power, it, it, it just, it's gonna. I mean, it's going to be a fight. People aren't going to like it. The, the powers aren't going to like it. And so just expect that. And, and that, and, and, and I <laughs> gird your loins <laughs> somewhere in, I believe the scriptures. Um, on the full armor of God. Yeah. Um, Isn't it gird your loins with righteousness. I think that's right. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm actually uh, thinking of a passage from Job even, but you're right. No, there's actually, there's absolutely the, the gird your, yes, putting on the full armor of righteousness, like just expect that that's going to happen. And I think that then, you know, you can, um, then I think you don't have to be disillusioned. Then you can be like, oh, here's, here's a, a, rea- a reaction or action equal and opposite reaction. And we must be doing something as you said, or else we wouldn't be getting this reaction. And I think that pushback is actually a sign that you're being effective. Yeah, I appreciate that, Sherry. And I also just would say, you know, to our listeners too, something that's been really important for me is to is to remember that I am um, 
I am in the mode. I am deputized to dismantle wherever I am. You know, I don't take on a mandate and say, oh, well, the mandate of the redistricting commission doesn't have that in it. So I guess I won't do that work here. It's like wherever I am, anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter. Um, this is part of, of what I can do. How can I bring it to my job? How can I bring it to my church? How can I bring it to public life? You know, this is not just a part-time volunteer job. This is my orientation and identity in the world. Well, I think that I can extend that deputization of you to, to all of us. We are, are, have all been deputized to dismantle oppressive structures wherever we are. Um, and, and we will send you the little badge if you just get in touch with us. <laughs> I love it. We definitely need a badge. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sherry. This podcast is hosted by us co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Thank you.